CNN immolates itself and the border melts down. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the Dominator, Dominic Pino. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Moik and the Free the Economy podcast. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere, from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please... Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Noah, I think CNN or a lot of people there would like to forget they did this this town hall. You knew, as Peggy Noonan wrote in her column this morning, from the opening moments when Trump got a standing ovation, that this was going to be a, a, a Trump event. Bill O'Reilly on this New York radio show I listened to a fair amount was, was predicting a week ago it's just, it just was going to be a massive victory for Trump that he just would steamroll uh, Caitlin, steamroll Caitlin Collins and only a few interviewers like Bill O'Reilly himself can handle Donald Trump. And sure enough, he steamrolled her, the audience. I mean, it wasn't Republicans. It was, this was like the, the hardest core of, of MAGA supporters who were into everything that Trump said. And uh, at least the conventional wisdom, which I agree with in this instance, is that it was a, a huge victory uh, for Trump. What do you think? Man, I don't even know where to begin. Um, I understand why just about every personality on that network feels the need to apologize for this event, while also scolding the, the people who are frustrated by it. You had Anderson Cooper the other night saying, like, you, you, I would understand if you never watched our network ever again. But do you? what do you think, that this person would just go away if you're not exposed to it? Like, it was real talking a lot of people off the ledge uh, who are clearly very animated and informing Anderson Cooper and others of their trepidation. A lot of that, I think, stems from the audience. And the network isn't really responsible for that. They outsource the job, as you often do in these sort of campaign-style events, to local party officials. Local party officials stack the place with Trump voters. But it was repulsive. The Coliseum had a more sophisticated audience. Mm -hmm. They laughed at the notion that the 2020 election was unfair. They, they, they hooped and hollered at the notion, uh, at the, uh, the attacks on E. Jean Carroll, who just recently won a verdict affirming that Donald Trump had sexually assaulted her and defamed her, which he proceeded to do again from the stage. They applauded and cheered at the idea that the country is dying. Use the word dying. That the justice system is congenitally unfair. It just, it just systematically oppresses them. It's not something you cheer for, not something you applaud. And so, yeah, I share the frustration of the viewers with the format. Um, but... There's something to be said for what they did, which was to give the audience or the viewing audience at home and people who see the clips a full uh, unabridged look at who this man is and who the front runner for the Republican Party's presidential nomination in 2024 is. And to a certain degree, it could be uh, something that the Trump campaign, which is thrilled with this performance by all accounts today, might look back on with a little bit more trepidation. Uh, or regret, because there's some long fuses on a lot of the things he said. You have mm -hmm. people like, for example, Senator Hawley was confronted with the idea that we should pardon most of the January 6 convicts. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And then Senator Todd Young, which is remarkable, 
uh, Indiana senator comes out and says, I can't support Donald Trump after this. Why? He is asked, and he says, you know, where do I begin? And I feel exactly the same way. It was a cavalcade of, of examples as to why this individual is unfit for public life. So, Dominic, I, I think the, the main theme politically from the last three or four months, there have been two beneficiaries of how things have, have uh, unspooled. One, Donald Trump, who uh, has, his odds have increased to win the Republican nomination, and Democrats who want to run against Trump festooned with a much, as much baggage as possible. And this town hall was just a, a, another a phenomenon in, in this, this larger dynamic. Now, uh, I, I think you can be a little miscued by how strong Trump seemed. There, there's the issue, as we've discussed, of the crowd, which was not just random Republicans. It was not a representative sampling of Republicans. The, these were clearly uh, MAGA folks. Now, there are a lot of them, and I wouldn't want to minimize that, but th this is not totally representative of a Republican opinion. Then you had all the questions coming from this kind of uh, mushy, mainstream um, um, media consensus, kind of center-left, no, no challenges from the right. And Trump is, is fighting CNN, who almost every, every Republican in the country uh, has, has contempt for. But all that said, the, the most disturbing thing for me in terms of uh, potentially bringing down Trump in the nomination fight is there's this question that's been asked for a long time and I think was increasingly important after 2020. Are people into Trump? Are they into the personality? Are they into the show? Are they into the persona? Are they into the worst aspects of him? Or are they into the, the substance? So that's the opening for a DeSantis or someone else to be more populist and you know be more combative with the press, but but not be Trump and and win over Trump supporters. The the indication from that town hall and from a you know fair fair number of things that have happened lately is that it's the former rather than the the latter. People are in to him as a guy, as a personality, and if that's true, he's going to be very hard to beat. And um, there's not even any indication there's anyone else in the field that has a, a compelling personality, you know, let alone a, a Trumpian personality. Well, if there's one uh, group of people who is into Trump's uh, negative aspects, it's CNN. Um, mm. CNN did great on this. They got uh, 3.1 million viewers for this thing. So they got what they wanted. Trump got what he wanted, um, which was to be back on TV. Uh, so that worked out well for them. I think the um, general American opinion of this, you can look at other TV ratings on the same night. So CNN's 3.1 million viewers, that's that's big for cable news. Uh, but cable news is kind of, um, you know, it's very much a secondary part of the TV market. If you look at broadcast TV, Survivor got 4.6 million viewers on the same day. Um, NBC runs uh, three... Chicago-based dramas on the same night, Chicago Med, Chicago Fire, and Chicago PD, all had around 5 million viewers, which was actually a low for that series. Um, so they, they, they kind of disappointed on that. Masked Singer on Fox got 3.4 million viewers. Uh, Jeopardy on ABC got 5.3 million. So uh, there, there's a certain extent to which the American people really aren't interested in this yet. Uh, presidential election is really far away. A lot of people don't pay that close attention to politics. Um, but, uh, and, and yeah, if you get a room together of Trump's hardest core supporters, which is 
what happened with this. I mean, it was the New Hampshire GOP and, um, you know, sort of conservative activists in New Hampshire that were out uh, filling this room for CNN um, that put together this uh this, this basically a campaign rally for him. I, you, know, you could see some of the people there, even when they weren't up applauding or laughing, whatever, they're, they're looking at Trump with a glow on their faces, right? They're yeah, <laughs> just so absolutely. delighted to be in his presence. And, and, and uh, in my opinion, Joe Biden should have to report this uh, to the FEC as a campaign contribution. <laughs> so, Charlie, where, where, where are you? D despairing, uh, contemptuous, uh, pissed, uh, all the above? All of them, of course. As our listeners know, I am not a big fan of cable news, and I think this event perfectly encapsulated a dynamic that I described a few weeks ago. That being that while everything Dominic just said is correct, and 3.1 million people in the grand scheme of things is not very many, it is enough to help him in the primary. The effect that that town hall had is primarily on the primary and in fact there were two audiences one of which is much bigger than the other the primary audience seemed to like it if the people who signed up to be there are any indication the primary audience thought that trump was entertaining and funny and on point but the same things that prompted them into clapping, repulse the average voter in the United States and make it more difficult for Trump to win a general election. Now, I will stop short of saying that that is why CNN hosted this event. But I don't think it hurts. CNN and Donald Trump profit from one another. They benefit from their relationship. CNN likes to pretend that it hates Donald Trump. And Donald Trump likes to pretend that he hates CNN. But actually, Donald Trump understands that there is a benefit to his going on CNN, and CNN understands that there is a benefit to having Trump on. That's why that town hall was organized. That's why Trump said yes. That's why CNN offered it. I don't think Caitlin Collins did a great job. But I don't think CNN cared. I think what CNN wanted was to beat Fox and MSNBC in the ratings, to try to convince some Americans that they are not a solely left-wing channel, that they are more akin to the CNN of old. And if that caused Anderson Cooper to complain about it, or Oliver Darcy in a bizarre spectacle to condemn his own network as if he didn't work there, and Adam Kinzinger to pretend that he's not a political analyst there for a night, fine. As for Trump... No, Trump's not cutting out the mainstream media. He's not even damaging the mainstream media. He's using it cleverly. And look, I have my litany of problems with Trump. I have more of them after that town hall. But let us not pretend that he is not entertaining and that he's not funny because he is. That is his sort of environment. And unless you can put someone in there who is going to be able to punch back, who is going to be able to command the room, a task that was made far more difficult, it must be said, by the fact that CNN chose a bunch of people to watch it who were on Trump's side, 
then you're going to get that result because Donald Trump is very talented. There is no point in pretending otherwise just because I don't like him. He is very talented. He showed it. He helped himself in the primary, hurt himself in the general, and we're barreling towards the same dynamic we got in 2020. Yeah, I think like most Republican primary voters, most of them obviously weren't watching it, but the, 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 the broad takeaway will be CNN tried to get Donald Trump and failed, and he turned the tables on them and body slammed CNN. And, and that's, that's a benefit to him. So, Noah, let's talk a little bit about the E. Jean Carroll verdict. It played into the town hall, as, as you mentioned, what, it was the, the day before? It already, already feels like ancient history. We're recording on Friday here. Maybe it was two days before. I forget. I'm, you know, a little uh, skeptical of this this verdict. That the main charge, main contention, that he raped her. They they didn't didn't find on that. Doesn't doesn't mean they they're saying it necessarily didn't happen. But they they go to this lesser um, battery uh, charge. And uh, I didn't mind. I, I have to confess the way Trump dealt with this at the town hall because I, I think there is some significant chance this didn't happen and he's being falsely accused which which does some sometimes happen you know not, as we know from the russia hoax and other things not not all trump allegations are true and if you're being falsely accused why not uh poor contempt on the the accuser and the accusation and and what he said you know it wasn't strictly uh, correct in in so, some respects but but it basically fairly compellingly captured all the doubts i have about her story well, I can't speak to the legal merits of the case. I can only defer to Andy McCarthy's analysis, which I find very compelling. And his analysis, without putting words in his mouth, suggests that the jury reached a rather judicious verdict. And it was one that was um, justified by the standards of evidence necessary in a civil trial. This was not a criminal claim. He was not charged criminally. And he, he being Donald Trump, demonstrated a fair amount of contempt for the process. Now, you say that's justified, and perhaps it is. But then so too is the jury's reaction, which is to uh, take, and they're allowed to do this in a civil proceeding, take his refusal to present his version of events, to appear, to testify, to contradict any of these claims as a count against you. Um, that's not what something you're allowed to do in a criminal case, but you can in a civil case. And it produced the outcome that maybe Donald Trump even wanted. Why wouldn't he want it? His whole affect his movement uh, is self-justifying by the perception that they are being forever persecuted by the powers that be. So why wouldn't it assist Donald Trump in that way? And then he goes on to present an elaborate, as you say on the stage, elaborate defense of his conduct, uh, granular detail of the supposed interaction uh, between him and his wife at the time and their family. Um, sort of contradicts a little bit of what he said in the deposition, where he was kind of confused about whether or not this woman was actually his wife at the time. Um, but no, I don't really think that this is a political benefit to him, perhaps in the primary. But uh, as we get closer to the general election, Republicans are now being confronted, as we knew that they would be, with Donald Trump's claims, which is that, you know, he couldn't have had any sort of sexual dalliance with this woman because it's not her type. So now we're all supposed to litigate the, pre the former president's type and E. Jean Carroll's looks and whether they're, you know, up to Donald Trump's particular standards. Who does this help? Who does this benefit? This is all such self-indulgent, uh, a carnival act 
that you know obviously reduces our politics down to perhaps the level that they've been at for quite some time. Um, but it's not something anybody should welcome. I mean, maybe it's naive to say like, maybe we should have a, perhaps a more uh, elevated level of discourse in this country when it comes to politics and talk about issues. But fully half that event was dominated by Donald Trump's peccadilloes, his, his personal judgment, hit the scandals that he's involved in. There's very little space to discuss public policy of any sort of relevance to Republican voters. A lot of people, even Rich um, uh, Ramesh Panuru has written a very good piece saying, you don't get Donald Trump by confronting him with a version of the truth. You get him by confronting the illogic of his version of the truth. Sure, fine, fair enough. Uh, and maybe you get him by talking about, for example, COVID and Anthony Fauci and the stuff that Republican primary voters want to talk about, fine. But what about just general public policy? I mean, we talked a little bit about it, talked a little bit about, for example, default upcoming in the, in the debt ceiling negotiations, a little bit about the border, a little bit about foreign policy with regards to Russia and Ukraine, but that was just about it. And that's a profound disservice to voters in this country who actually do care about political outcomes and want to see a party advance their interests. We're not getting that from Donald Trump's candidacy. We can't. He, his, his personal conduct blots out the sun. So, Charlie, what do you make of this verdict? The, the issue I have with... Um you know, it's, it's gross when Trump says, oh, you know, look at her. I, I never would have had an affair with her or assaulted her or whatever. But his denial on that front with Stormy Daniels is, is inherently implausible, right? Because 10, 15 years ago, she, she is a porn, you know, a smoking hot porn star at the top of her game. So the, the idea that Trump, oh, she's not my type is completely ridiculous. Jean Carroll at the time of the alleged assault was, was 52 years old. And then more to the point is just... To rape someone in a, a, a public place like a department store where there are lots of people or there people can show up randomly, even if it's relatively deserted, <clears throat> would um, involve a, a, a level of brazenness, I think, even beyond Donald Trump. And this doesn't accord, you know, the Trump allegations, they fall in three buckets and and we have lots of them and they're uh he's basically admitted to to all of them um so so any any charge along those lines i tend to believe ogling um you know uh women in dressing rooms before beauty pageants yes he, he's he's definitely done that groping women yes he said he he did it his his uh, explanation to cnn town hall this was just a social sociological observation <laughs> about what famous and powerful people could do obviously absurd, and kissing women out of the blue, all that. But um, we hadn't heard a rape allegation before. But on the other side of the ledger, she did call Jean Carroll uh, people immediately afterwards, including one friend 10 minutes afterwards. I'm skeptical, yes. And I think it's always worth remembering that just because somebody has done this or that doesn't mean they've done everything of which they will be accused. And in fact, it's important for us to remember that more in the case of people about whom we are primed to believe all manner of bad news. You know, I am the criminal justice squish. I instinctively side with the defense. And as I said to Megyn Kelly on her show yesterday, it does bother me when I hear people saying that CNN should not have given him a platform to deny that he did it. Because obviously, if you are telling the truth about your innocence, and if you're lying about your innocence, you will say the same thing. 
it would be a pretty weird standard not to permit people onto television to insist that they hadn't done something of which they were accused. But I think the rest of what Donald Trump has done and that we know he has done, not just with women but across the board, is disqualifying. So while it's imperative that we examine everything of which he is accused on its own terms and that we insist that our courts do that and that we demand a cultural norm that does that, the fact is that even if E. Jean Carroll made this whole thing up out of whole cloth, Donald Trump, in many other respects, is just unfit to be president, and I still find it absolutely bizarre that he's being considered by the party that considers itself to be conservative and socially conservative at that. This is a man, apparently, to whom nothing sticks, at least not among Republican primary voters. It does among the voting public at large. So, yeah, I'm skeptical of this one. And, yeah, it matters. The truth matters. But, (laughs) I mean, this is the... The 90th time that we've had to examine whether or not Trump did something awful of which he was accused. Most of the things he's been accused of, he's either admitted himself, like, you know, trying to stage a coup, or seem fairly straightforward. And we're still parsing these questions, which we should do as a citizen, but not as a presidential candidate. So let me break the fourth wall here for a second. I have a very complex exit question coming up. I'll re- read these these items to you, but I also texted them to you, to, to all of you if you want to t- take a look. I'm going to ask you to rank, rank the likelihood of the items I, I texted you. But let me come back to that in just a second. Dominic, one last thing that notable about the, the town hall that we'd be remiss if we didn't address at least briefly it just showed, and there have been indications of this in interviews and at rallies, but Trump is all in on January 6th now. Just all in, right? He's going to pardon most of them. Maybe a couple ran out of control. At the same time, there's a little contradiction because like, Nancy Pelosi should have secured the Capitol, but, but nothing bad happened on, on, on that day. Mike Pence, you know, he had the legal authority and the duty, given that the uh, election was stolen, to send the vote back to the states, on and on. Not, not the least bit of uh, defensiveness, um, not, not, not conceding nothing, just totally embracing this full reversal of the post-election period to, to make it a good thing, including January 6th. Yeah, if, if Mike Pence is a... Is a uh, is, if Mike Pence believes that he was in the right and I believe that he does wholeheartedly, and I believe he obviously was in the right, um, he needs to get in the primary race and go after this guy. Uh, I, I think that was a, a big takeaway from this because for Pence to be constantly attacked by, by Trump for this um, is just, and for, for Pence to not do anything back, you know, not to say anything back about it is, 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 is not good for him. Um, I, I think he needs to get in the race and he needs to, uh, he needs to go on offense because look, Mike Pence did the right thing. 
There is no constitutional way to send it back to the states. That's not a thing, <laughs> okay? And um, uh, and and Trump keeps insisting that it was, and um, and that's not even counting the the, the people who uh, broke into the Capitol and apparently wanted to hang the guy. So, uh, yeah. So it's it's absolutely crazy that he continues to focus on this. Um, every other Republican running needs to just, to the extent they can, just, like, not, uh, needs to not obsess about it because um, it is not something that voters actually care about. They want to go forward. They want to, you know, what are you going to do for me uh, as president? What are you going to do to make the country better for me, for my children, whatever? Uh, That's what voters want to hear about. There's lots of Republicans out there with compelling messages. At the same time that Trump keeps doing all this stuff, you know, the Florida legislature under Ron DeSantis just had their most productive session in human history, basically, uh, put a just constant factory of conservative wins down there. Um, that That's what I want to see from a president. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be DeSantis. It could be someone else, too. But, I mean, my goodness, that's uh, certainly better than obsessing over the last election that you lost. <clears throat> okay. Can I just j- jump in here real quick? Yep. Um, because it's it's insane. This should be an elementary observation, but it doesn't seem to be. People don't like what happened on January 6th. Yeah. Donald Trump and MAGA voters seem to think that they can muscle into the public consciousness a reinterpretation of events of that day. You can't. Voters are sending every possible signal. It's not MAGA policies. It's not abortion. The stuff that killed you in 2022, the stuff that killed you in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, name the race. It's the 2020. It's the 2020 election fraud narrative, which was the predicate for the sacking of the capital of the United States. Yeah, but they, they can't change like Republican that. minds. But Republicans... No, but, you know, but, one sorry. of the most annoying things that I saw from the right in response to this CNN town hall was the indignant complaint made most obviously by Byron Donalds, who was on the panel, that CNN kept talking about January 6th when American voters don't want to hear about it. Now, that was true. They did start with that. And Caitlin Collins did ask it over and over again. But if it is the case that American voters don't want to hear about January 6th, that is an indictment of Donald Trump too, because it's all he wants to talk about. Go on his Truth Social feed. It's all he talks about is 2020, the election, and January 6th. That's it. All right. So this promised, complicated, multi-item, in fact, seven-item exit question. You break out your pencils or look at your text. So let's rank in likelihood of these things happening in the nomination battle. I, I got seven of them. Initially, I had six. I couldn't help myself. I added another. Asa Hutchison hits more than 1% in the polls. Vivek Ramaswamy hits double digits in the polls or in, in uh, the poll, national polls or in the polls in, in some early state. Glenn Youngkin or Brian Kemp gets in. Chris Christie gets in. DeSantis doesn't get in. Trump skips the early debates. Nikki Haley drops out before any votes. I'm going to go to you first, Noah. Do you need some more time? Do you need me to tap dance? Do you need me to repeat the question? Or do you have I'm, your ranking? I'm writing so furiously right now. <laughs> <laughs> should I go Try first? Should, should, I, should, I, should I go first to give everyone a little more time? Why not? All right. Yeah, because so I've only got five. So, yeah. Okay, so I'll be ready. So, so this is how I'd, I'd rank them. 
Trump skips the early debates. In, in order of likelihood to uh, not, not going to happen. Trump skips the early debates. I think he might be tempted now a little bit more um, if, if he was tempted, uh, wasn't tempted already to get into the early debates because he's convinced, you know, <laughs> he can destroy Caitlin Collins, he can destroy anyone. But I think he's going to skip the early debates. I think it just makes sense at every level for him. I think it makes it, uh, the town hall makes it more likely Chris Christie gets in. So I'm going to say Chris Christie does get in. I'm going to say Vivek. I think Vivek is going to have a moment uh, somewhere at some time. So I'm going to say he, he hits double digits. Nikki Haley drops out before anyone votes. I think that's going to happen because she's going to run out of money. So all, all those items are, are more likely than not. Now, now I uh, pass the event horizon to things that I think are less likely than not. My final three, Asa Hutchinson hits more than 1%. Uh, very doubtful. Glenn Youngkin or Brian Kemp gets in. I, I don't think so. Both hugely impressive, especially Brian Kemp. I mean, he's, he's one of the most impressive Republicans in the country by any measure. And then I'll, I'll rank last in terms of likelihood DeSantis doesn't get in. I think maybe there's a more than zero chance of that, but still very unlikely. So, Noah, are you ready? Yes. All right. Most likely, Vivek hits double digits. At some point in the cycle, he has a moment. There's always some outsider who has a great performance on the debate stage and gets a little bump and it fades. And he's got a, a real shot of that. Um, second most likely, uh, this is a real toss-up because it's close, but I'm going to say Nikki Haley drops out before Iowa, followed very closely by Trump skips the debates because um, there will be a temptation there. And then it goes just a distance. It's like interplanetary distance between these events. So now very unlikely, I think. Youngkin and Kemp get in. Slightly less likely, Christie gets in. Actually, Christie gets in, and then less likely, Youngkin Kemp gets in. Even less likely, DeSantis never gets in, and the least likely outcome, Hutchison draws more than <laughs> All right, that's a good list. Dominic? Uh, most likely, Chris Christie gets in. I think especially after that CNN town hall, he wants to get in there and bully the guy, and I'm here for it. Uh, Trump skips the debate, should be second. Uh, Nikki Haley drops out, third. Uh, Youngkin or Kemp gets in, fourth. Uh, Asa Hutchinson gets 1%, fifth. Uh, Vivek gets double digits, sixth. And uh, DeSantis doesn't get in, seventh. So uh, everyone, we got consensus on that being the least, least likely option. At least so far. Charlie, what's your list? Let's see. I think least likely is Asa Hutchinson hits more than 1%. So you're going least likely to most likely? Yeah. Okay. Followed by DeSantis doesn't get in. Followed by Glenn Youngkin or Brian Kemp does get in. Followed by... Nikki Haley drops out before any votes. So, Charlie, can you sort of draw, draw a line through them where you think you're, you're getting to more likely than not territory? If you haven't I'm still in okay. unlikely. I'm right. still below the unlikely line. <laughs> below the likely line. And then I'm going to put Vivek on the border between unlikely and likely hitting double digits. Then likely is Chris Christie gets in. 
I think he is determined to get in, ostensibly to attack Trump, but actually to attract attack whichever candidate has the best chance of beating him. That's what Chris Christie was put on this earth to do. All right. So I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll have our, our extensive staff collate all these and, uh, and, and come up with what's the consensus on uh, um, likely or least likely and, and get, get that out to, you, to our listeners sometime over the next uh, year or so. So with that, let's go to Moink, our great friends at Moink. We all love Moink. Charlie especially loves Moink. I do. And as I remind our listeners every time I read this Moink ad, I love Moink more than Sarah Shitty. She is uh, just not as good at loving Moink as she might. I have she might be a poser. She might not really like Moink. She just, just might be pretending to go along with the crowd. You know, if she really loved Moink, she'd take it up with her in her plane when she goes flying. And I don't think... Just munching on Moink bacon, exactly. doing her cross-country flights. I had, I had Moink last night. I had Moink sausages. The night before, my wife made uh, wonton soup. I had Moink pork in that. I mean, I am... So I does am she, does she make, make her own dumplings? or, or uh, Yep. But, wow. Absolutely. That's impressive. Scratch, which is great because it, it smells so good when she's preparing them with all the ginger and... Uh, Frying pork. Anyway, Moink is terrific, as you may have noticed. Uh, that's because 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company owned by the Chinese. And their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China itself. Yet you will find it in America in your grocery aisle every day. But there is a better way. And that better way is... Moink, which delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should, because the family farm does it better. You can taste the difference, and you can feel good knowing that you're helping family farms stay financially independent too. Now, how this works is you get a box every month to your house uh, with Moink meat inside of it. You get to choose what meats are delivered. You can get ribeyes and chicken breasts and pork chops and salmon fillets and much more. And if you want to, you can cancel any time, but you aren't going to want to do that. And we have a deal for you here at the editors. You go to moinkbox.com, M-O-I-N-K box.com slash editors you will get free bacon in your first box, exactly the sort of free bacon that Sarah Shitty is not taking up with her in the plane and munching on while she's flying, which she should because it's the best bacon you will ever taste. It's only available for a limited time if you go to moinkbox.com slash editors. All right, so Dominic, let's move on from the disaster of the CNN town hall to the disaster on the border. Estimates were when Title 42 expired after a a convoluted legal fight that uh, we'd see about 10,000 crossings uh, a day, which is just off the charts, just off the charts. You know, it was when the, the border was under control, you know, it was hundreds. So, so this is just uh, un unprecedented, record-breaking stuff. Tuesday, we had 11,000 before Title 42 expired midnight uh, last night. So there... Uh, Bunches of people, huge masses of people on the other side of the border who have been waiting for Title 42 to expire. 
This has gotten great coverage on Fox News. Bill Malugin, one of the best journalists down on the border, and, and very often seemingly the only journalist down on the border, has been all, all over this. And even Joe Biden, this is, this is as close as Biden will ever come to calling the border a crisis. He said the other day, it's going to be chaotic for a little while. Yeah, I think the argument from some Democrats that this is all uh, a sign of, you know, well, you should have passed comprehensive immigration reform um, is just completely disingenuous. First of all, no one ever knows what comprehensive immigration reform actually means. It's just it's just three words that are strung together. Um, it means it means more immigrants. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what it means. Um, there's there's no uh, there's no uh, actual um, piece of legislation that's called comprehensive immigration reform. And uh, second, uh, you know, if, if this was such a priority to Democrats, um, they could have pursued it the last time they had unified government, which was not that long ago. Uh, and they didn't. So uh, there's um, – there's, and, and now that this has been going on uh, and the Biden administration has, uh, you know, uh, just flailed around trying to prevent it, Republicans in the House have passed a piece of legislation. Um, it seems like it would help. Uh, so th this is the kind of thing where uh, at least, you know, it's hard for Democrats to say, oh, Republicans are just these crazy obstructionists. They don't have any plans. They don't do anything. Well, we, they just passed a bill. They just passed a bill. And you guys didn't. So uh, so let's let's see. You know, if, if, if we want to have an argument about immigration, about the merits of what that immigration policy should be, that's perfectly fine. And that's what the deliberative process in Congress in lawmaking is for. But this just ridiculous uh, caricature of Republicans as just having no ideas and just being hypercritical with, with no alternatives, it's not true. Um, Kevin McCarthy actually, somewhat to my surprise, has been able to, uh, on the debt ceiling and on this, actually put forward pieces of legislation and get them passed in the House of Representatives. Um, and, uh, and now it's up to Democrats to actually uh, respond to that. Yeah, I mean, McCarthy has been uh, impressive so far. This is the best border enforcement measure that's ever passed a chamber of the United States Congress. It takes all the sort of the traditional enforcement measures Republicans have passed in, in bills or put in bills over and over again, more resources, more structure down at the border, and then adds uh, and codifies basically the, the practices that, that Trump finally came up with that actually worked at, at the border, making asylum seekers stay in Mexico while pursuing their claims, et cetera. So this is the best border enforcement bill that's, that's ever, ever passed. It's going nowhere in the Senate and it's obviously not going obviously to be signed into law. But Charlie, at the border, it's really a manufactured crisis, not in the usual sense that people use that phrase. But Biden created this. I mean, he just created this. It was totally predictable what was going to happen when he ripped off all the, the Trump stuff and had no alternative. You were going to see huge numbers. We've, we've seen huge numbers prior to this. The last little leg they had to stand on in terms of enforcement was Title 42. Now that's going away, and it's, it's predictably it, uh, was going to get worse. It's already uh, gotten worse. The, the Biden approach is denial coupled with, okay, we have this app where you can apply for parole, which is basically you're someone we never would have let in. Uh, in, in any other circumstance, but we're going to let you in legally for a, a year or two so you don't add to the illegal numbers and the images of, of people crossing the Rio Grande. 
um, in, in massive numbers and supposedly have tougher enforcement, you know, a carrot and a stick. But the, the tougher enforcement, unless you're applying it to a critical mass of people trying to cross, the message is not going to get to anyone that this isn't a good proposition, that that has some strong likelihood to succeed. And they haven't applied it to a, a, a critical mass of people. They don't have the will to or the resources at this point. There's a video, I think, from yesterday that's doing the rounds of Ted Cruz making a pretty good point, which is that when Democrats are pushed on this question, they suggest that nobody knows how to deal with the crisis at the border, and that that's not true. Of course, it is true that we can't reduce the numbers to zero, but as Cruz points out, we had a handle on this for a while by instituting certain policies that on his first day in office, Joe Biden abjured. Now, I have argued that it was not only the right thing for Joe Biden to do to end the invocation of Title 42, but that he had no choice but to do so. The president is not a dictator. The law that yielded Title 42 was invoked by an emergency. We no longer are in that emergency. As such, the use of Title 42 by the executive branch, absent instruction by Congress, needed to expire. But that is not to say that Congress can't continue it if it wishes to. The case against Joe Biden continuing with Title 42 is that he has no statutory authority. He could get it. That's what Congress should have done here. And Joe Biden should have, if he's serious about the border, which he's not, asked Congress to do so. There are, in fact, people in Congress who are not completely consumed by this bizarre ideology within the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party. Yep. Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, mm-hmm. John Tester, apparently Sherrod now Brown. Yeah. Sherrod Brown in Ohio, who has a tough fight ahead of him in what has become a red state. So while it is true that as the press keeps framing it, Title 42 expired because the emergency expired, it didn't have to. And in fact, you don't have to pass a law saying Title 42 can obtain in other circumstances. You just have to take the substance of what Title 42 allows the federal government to do and make that our immigration policy, which in my estimation is what we should have done. The Democrats don't want to do that. They have blocked that whenever they have had the chance. And that means that this is on them. They took a status quo that was much better than the one over which they are presiding now, and they deliberately turned it into this. And the public should punish them for doing it. Yeah, so no, the problem is the, well, there are two problems. There are a number of problems, but there are two main ones, perhaps. One is the Democrats treat everything Trump did at the border as if it were the same as child separation, or that all he did was child separations. And that happened for about a week. It was politically unsustainable. It ended up being a huge moral problem because they, they couldn't, uh, it didn't work practically. You were losing track, track of kids. Terrible. Just, uh, it was a, a fiasco. And it, it just looked as though, you know, Trump had a border crisis on, on his hand and uh, on his hands and there was no he wasn't going to find a way to deal with it. He finally did with things that are humane and actually uh, effective. And then the, the broader problem is at the end of the day, they just don't think 
that we have any right to exclude anyone who has any sort of asylum claim, no matter how bogus it is. And a lot of people say, oh, they're looking to future voters. Maybe that's an element of it, but that's a, that's a very long, you know, a long-term proposition before these people are, are going to be uh, voting. But they just don't think they have sort of uh, at, at bottom a kind of open borders attitude. The border really isn't uh, legitimate, and uh, we, we don't have a right to exclude people. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's really your, it's the latter explanation is the ideological affinity here. Everything else is just gloss over, uh, some legitimizing gloss over what is essentially an uh, ideological policy preference. I take exception to some extent with the extent to which Democrats attacked um, uh, the Trump administration for the child separation policy, which is essentially comporting, comporting with the Flores settlement. We lost kids under Obama, a lot of them. Uh, the Biden administration has continued separating fa- families because it's the legal precedent that they have to mm-hmm. comport with. What the Trump administration did, which was distasteful, and I said it was distasteful at the time and maintained that it was, is that um, at the time, it was his uh, 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 head of the D- Department of Homeland Security who said that we would use this as a deterrent measure, that separating children from their families would deter migrants from coming. It wasn't true, uh, A. And B, it was a morally questionable policy. But that was only rhetoric to around what is the existing policy. There's a congressional remedy here. If Congress wants to seek it, they don't. Um, to your point about this bill, I think it, again, I agree. It's some, one of the strongest pieces of legislation. And there are a lot of bones here that the Senate could take up uh, as something uh, that would actually have an effect on the cascade of migrants crossing over the southern border. Now, 10,000 contacts per day for every day for the last week now. And it's only going to get worse. Um, one of the sticky provisions here, though, is uh, nationally verify, for example. Uh, so Tom Massey, who's kind of this iconoclastic libertarian guy, voted against this, objected strongly to the E-Verify position. I was trying to find out what the libertarian view on E-Verify is, so I, and I turned up this quote from former Representative Justin Amash. Uh, quote, E-Verify is laying the foundation for a national biometric database and a social credit system, giving the state almost absolute power over your life. Now, listen, I have as much concern for the integrity of our precious bodily fluids as anybody, but that kind of logic elides A to B because there's a parade of horribles between A and B. However, in this bill, a sense of Congress provision was added to satisfy people who do have these objections, particularly how it would affect the agricultural industry in this country, saying their considerations would be, it would be, quote, taken into consideration if the mandate was ever finalized, which suggests it won't be. So temper your enthusiasm for at least that particular provision in this bill if it ever finds its way to the Senate. But briefly on uh, Speaker McCarthy's um, efficacy here and what we didn't see coming, in part because on paper he should be one of the weakest speakers uh, in our memory. But I was going back and forth with uh, a conservative operative back in, in Texas, Matt McCowick, who had a great observation. He said, quote, by placing hardline conservatives on rules, on the Rules Committee, mm-hmm. He assured that any bill that comes to the floor would have sufficiently broad support. Mm -hmm. It was a masterstroke. It weakens the Speaker's power, but it strengthens the conference. And that's true uh, insofar as you get these messaging bills, very like Pelosi-style strategy where you push out a messaging bill and everybody's on board. And and it does suggest, I mean, you couldn't tell that he's the weakest Speaker on paper because he's delivering the conference week after week. But... One, eventually, he's going to have to push through a compromise bill that the conference isn't going to like. 
Yeah, that's where push comes to shove. But we, we got to give credit to the, the one person on this podcast who was totally right about this the speakership fight from the beginning was the dominator who uh, was not freaked out um, about it at, at all. Do you want to take a, a brief victory lap, Dominic? Uh, thank you, Rich. Yes. Um, I, look, Congress is supposed to be a deliberative body. They are supposed to have those deliberations in public. They can get ugly sometimes. Uh, that's part of a legislature and a representative democracy. Uh, we've had too little of that in the recent past with all of these negotiations happening uh, between leadership, behind closed doors, everything needing to appear orderly and nice and neat when it's presented to us, you know, the, the peasants, the commoners. Um, but this was, this was much better process to just get this out in the open, have a fight about it. Uh, take as long as you need and come to a resolution that the, the party could get behind. So I think this is, this, is, this is closer to what Congress should be doing and closer to how Congress is supposed to work. So Charlie Cook, next question to you first. On the border, President Joe Biden will just continue basically to write it out and assume things will get really bad and then slowly come back to at least a, a new normal or things will get so bad he'll feel compelled to ask Congress for some specific and new enforcement legislation. I don't think things will get bad enough for him to ask Congress. I could see a circumstance in which things get bad enough that the Cinema Mansion Tester mm -hmm. Coalition, which is growing, as we noted with Brown, go to him and say, I'm sorry, but we are going to pass this and send it to you. You must decide what to do next. Mm -hmm. Dominic. Yeah, uh, I would like to think that could happen. I'm not sure Chuck Schumer would let it get to the floor. Um, but if there's a way to sort of uh, overrule him by, uh, you know, uh, by this sort of uh, bipartisan majority vote in the other direction. Yeah, I can see that happening. Noah. Uh, Joe Biden will not be able to ride this out. He would be if it was only Republicans making this an issue. But the masterful program of migrant transfers from Texas, Arizona, Florida, yeah. it used to be Arizona, it used to be Colorado. Governor Polis was doing this. Um, that has made the advocates for something to happen at the border. People like Eric Adams in New York and Muriel Bowser in Washington and outgoing Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Lightfoot in Chicago. So, no, he won't be able to ignore it. So I'm going to say it's more likely than not that he's, he's going to ride it out. I do not discount uh, Charlie's scenario. It's kind of forced on him. And, and one of the factors, uh, Noah, you're, uh, I'm glad you brought it up, is, is the, the transfers that uh, have, have been, a, as you wrote, Noah, a big political success and a substantive success. And you know, there's really no reason that uh, you know, Texas and border areas should just absorb all of the, the consequences from the, the refusal to enforce our, our sovereign border. And you have this thing in New York now where, you know, they come into New York City at, at un, unsustainable clips. So now they're being passed on to the suburbs. And, you know, and these suburbs may try to pass, pass them on, you know, for, further north. You may get back, you know, all the way up to the, uh, the Canadian border at this pace. And, you know, th these are desperate people and we should have sympathy for them, the, the migrants, but uh, we need to enforce force our, our laws. And if they're, uh, you know, so some of these folks in Venezuela might have legitimate asylum claims, but most of these these folks are coming here purely for economic reasons and just just absorbing them if they show the initiative to come is, is not the way the system's 
uh, supposed to work uh, under under our laws and uh, under common sense. So with that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode. Want to tell listeners about a new podcast from our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. It's called Free the Economy, and it's about how we can all be happier, healthier, and wealthier in a world with less government control, from legalizing the gig economy to the perils of ESG and what true diversity in the workplace looks like. Each week, CEI's Free the Economy podcast brings you up to speed on news you can use and welcomes experts in their field to have honest and candid conversations about how these policies and more shape our economy and society. America has the greatest economy in the world, but it could be even stronger if we embraced a free society where innovation and entrepreneurship were encouraged and not shackled with bureaucratic controls. Check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash free the economy, cei.org slash free the economy. So we're running a little long as usual as we spent a lot of time talking about the Trump town hall. So we're going to hit a third topic here, but let's just do it exit question style. You had House Republicans releasing a report, Charlie, about Biden family money, where you have these kind of uh, uh, eyebrow raising, to say, to say the least, uh, pattern. Of, of these LLCs created with anodyne uh, names or in, last names of, of other people getting huge checks from of foreign uh, entities or, or foreigners and then uh, the, the checks uh, getting doled out to um, various Biden family members. Your guess is that eventually it will be established that Joe Biden was directly profiting himself from this family business, yes or no? Well, someone's done something wrong here. Someone, at the very least, has tried to hide some money flows, and at worst, is engaged in high-level criminal activity. At the moment, Joe Biden is not implicated, although I would just note that if the president were a Republican, and this fact pattern were established, we would not be seeing this put at the bottom of every news website and on page 17 of the newspapers. This would be an obsession. I think this news came out on the same day as George Santos was indicted. The order of those stories if george santos had been a democrat and the president had been a republican would have been reversed do i think that president biden is involved yes probably i do i don't know how because i can't know how so i'll leave it there yeah so the key key point here dominic is established will it be Established. Even if you believe Joe Biden was profiting from this, you can still be a no. Yeah, I think it's gonna. I think they're gonna have a really hard time establishing it um, in in clear enough fact to uh, be convincing. I also think there's a problem in terms of making voters care about this. Um, there was uh, members of Congress were sharing a. Uh, flowchart explaining this scandal. And anytime you have a scandal that needs to be explained by a flowchart, mm -hmm. you're going to have a really hard time getting people to care about it. 
we've seen this, and, and it's and it's true. I mean, everything Charlie said is right about the the way the media covers this. Um, the partisan stuff is true, and even regardless of the partisan stuff, George Santos is a freshman congressman. Joe Biden's president of the United States. It's a little bit different, uh, and um, but but look, the media is what it is, and uh, and this scandal is what it is. We've seen uh, north of the border, the Trudeau administration in, in, in Canada, the Trudeau government in Canada has had three or four really complicated financial scandals like this. And Canadian media is just as left-wing biased as ours is. And uh, they the guy keeps getting elected. So um, I, I think it's going to be really hard to make this an issue that voters are actually going to care about and act upon. Can I just very briefly suggest that although the media may be dispositive in the way Dominic described, you needed a flowchart for a long time to describe Watergate. The question is what happens if there are new facts that are established. And after a while, people catch up with the details and it becomes a ditty didn't he? And if that happens to Biden and there is any fire there rather than just smoke which is not established that will be very bad for him whether it leads to a resignation or an indictment or not no yeah <clears throat> charlie's absolutely right if you can boil this down to a sentence then it it has the potential to catch fire but um unless they applied the kind of scrupulous rigor that they applied to handling classified documents you're not going to find joe biden's signature on a piece of paper anywhere i don't think but the only thing that gives me pause is some of the approaches that you're hearing from, for example, Hunter Biden's counsel, who who resurrected a very Clintonian argument that this is all old news. Retread, mm -hmm. repackaged, restatement, misstatements, uh, perfectly proper meetings. Uh, they're all, you know, we've all heard all this before. Well, no, we actually haven't. Hadn't heard about the, Ser the Serbia stuff. Hadn't heard about the Romania stuff. What we had heard about are these Chinese transfers. And the only reason we had heard about them is because Republicans dug them up in 2020. So... The, the dissembling there gives me pause and suggests maybe there's a little bit more there than even Republicans were able to produce. So I'm going to say no. I, I think he was benefiting in, in some way from all this, yes. But then establishing it is the question. And then the, there's a, another layer to it. Dominic was kind of getting at establishing it to the satisfaction of of the media such that they feel obligated to to cover it and and help the process of people caring about it that's that's a whole whole different proposition so i'm a no at the moment with that let me do a quick plug for nr plus please do the right thing and sign up for nr plus soothe your conscience which i i know every time you're going on national review and dancing around our our paywall and using multiple browsers and multiple devices, whatever you people are doing out there, you can just stop and do the right thing and sign up for NR Plus. There are all sorts of great ancillary benefits to signing up. I met some, some folks, by the way, at a local Republican event uh, last night who are, uh, uh, one, they're wonderful folks, loyal editors, listeners, and members of, of NR Plus and 
print subscribers, just because they, they want to, to get everything in every format possible and support us in every way possible. And that's another really crucial reason to sign up for NR Plus. It uh, helps our journalism happen. At the end of the day, we do need people in some form or other to pay for our content. So please, if you haven't already, join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers, including that couple I met last night as members of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Dominic, you went to a Yankees game with our colleague Jimmy Quinn last night. I haven't yet looked up the time of the, the game, but 10 runs were scored and, you know, it might have, have uh, gone by in two and a half minutes. Thanks. Two and a half hours, I should say. Two and a half minutes would be great, but but we'll have to settle for two and a half hours. Thanks to the pitch clock. Yeah, two and a half minutes would be your dream baseball game. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Uh, yeah, it, it was about two and a half hours. That's about how long it took. Um, uh, it was a beautiful night. It was absolutely perfect weather here in New York uh, at, at Yankee Stadium last night. And honestly, I would have been perfectly fine if it went three hours. It was just wonderful. <laughs> um well, you were there with Jimmy Quinn, so f- a five-hour game would have been fine. Exactly, exactly. I was there with Jimmy, and then sitting on the other side of me was uh, a, uh, a man visiting from Australia who was seeing his first ever baseball game. So uh, it was exciting to uh, very explain cool. some. You know, he had he had lots of questions about things, and it was it was very fun to sort of introduce him to the game. I had a uh, extra long sabred hot dog, so um, got the full New yeah, York experience. Foot, foot, foot long? They do? Do they do look like they're they're actually? Our, our, uh, yep, yep, yep. So, um, so no, it was great. Uh, check another stadium off my list, and uh, it was it was a very good time. So, how, how many how many you got? Um, I was I was running through the list with Jimmy as we were walking out of the stadium yesterday. I'm somewhere around I'm somewhere around ten or twelve. Um, so, okay, I think I I need to look at my my list. I think I'm, I think I'm twenty something, but I, I got some I got some years on you. Yeah, so I, I got some old. Old, old ballparks, uh, unfortunately, no longer available uh, for you. So, Noah, you have been frustrated by the fact that here in the, the uh, benighted Northeast, crushed by uh, statist regulation, that the weed killer doesn't actually work. Charlie knows more about this than I do, apparently. But uh, at some point in the last couple of years, yes, for some reason, weed killer no longer serves its primary purpose of actually killing weeds. Uh, I need to research this because I'm writing about the uh, an attack on everything that actually functions as it's supposed to do. Uh, but yeah, so my wife and I have to confront this, and my wife decided to look online for some alternatives. So she's concocted this holistic remedy of uh, white vinegar and salt, and that we have to use as a as a replacement for actually functional weed killers. So now you walk around my property, <laughs> and there are parts of it that smell like salad dressing. <laughs> it's not as not a problem we have in Florida, where we're allowed modern consumer goods. Right, yeah, so, things that uh, actually function <laughs> as they're supposed to function. Yeah, when you move to Florida, they meet you at the border and hand you a flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> so, Charlie, speaking of stadiums, you are now the proud owner of Jaguar season tickets. Absolutely. I am so excited about this. I felt the need to text people I haven't spoken to in three years and say, hey, I hope everything's fine, just so you know. I have a bunch of Jaguar season tickets. This has been a long-standing flirtation of mine 
but it was turbocharged by the end of last season when I got into going to see every Jaguars game that I could, including Rich, as I'm sure you appreciate both of the Titans games that (laughs) put us into the playoffs. And this morning, after the schedule was released last night, friend and I just pulled the trigger and got some, and we'll be going to as many games as we can. Good for you. So we have a very sports-oriented series of light items here. So I I went to Yankee Stadium the, the day before, Dominic did for an afternoon game, and we've been trying to to get a ball when we go to the stadium lately. So we're hanging out in the near the bullpen area in the outfield, where you're likely to get a bullpen catcher of maybe tossing you a ball, and players are playing catch in the in the outfield. And um, a, a Yankee pitcher just had this this duffel ball full of bags and just started started joyfully and you know, toss them into the, the stands. And it's the closest I, I've come to getting a ball since the, actually the first baseball game I ever saw, which was in Memorial Stadium, where the Orioles used to play. We were sitting in the upper deck um, as a family at Memorial Stadium. This one, upper decks, there are still posts, uh, pillars in ballparks. So the upper deck was, was quite close to the, the field and actually fly, foul balls would go into the upper deck. We were a couple rows, I don't know, four or five ro- rows back. And I still remember seeing the laces spinning, <laughs> this foul ball and the feeling in my stomach. And my dad just, just, just missed it. And this one, I got that feeling in my stomach again after you know decades, it's finally happening. This thing is going directly in my glove, and there's a guy a, a row, row ahead of me who you know, stood on his tippy toes and, and barehanded it with with both hands, and t- to my shock and and uh, surprise, the the one other close encounter with a, a ball. Um, I was with some friends years ago at PNC Park, which is a wonderful place to watch baseball games. It was it was a traditional doubleheader, and the Pirates were terrible then, and they were playing the Astros, and they're, they're losing like 6 um, nothing the whole game, and then they, they had this rally at the end. They ended up winning 8-6 eight to, eight to six on a walk-off grand slam. We were sitting in the right field bleachers, and at some point early on in the game, my, my friend is like, let's move up, you know, five or six rows, just get a little closer, and, and they came out during a, one of the... Uh, uh, middle of one of the innings with one of these guns that shoots t-shirts and my friend caught a t-shirt he's like this is so great i told you we should have moved up a couple rows you know i'm a genius and then this walk-off grand slam slams right into the back of the seats we had vacated <laughs> five or rows five or six rows behind us so those those are my three uh three close encounters with that it's time for our editor's picks no rothman what's your pick uh my pick is actually an editorial uh, the Jordan Neely tragedy, and it captures a lot of the sentiments that were expressed on the podcast on Tuesday by Michael Brendan Doherty, a very righteous, uh, 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 I won't want to call it a rant, but it was a absolutely righteous uh, soliloquy that everybody should listen to and that I agree with wholeheartedly. And if you haven't listened to it, go read this editorial and then go listen to that. Dominic, what's your pick? My pick is a piece from an outside contributor named Jason Poge, who was a uh, assistant attorney um, uh, prosecutor in Illinois, and it's called "After 20 Years as a Prosecutor in Illinois, I Quit." Piece was originally at a Real Co- Real Clear Politics, but I'm glad that we ran it on our site as well. It is a letter um, that it's his resignation letter as a prosecutor, uh, basically saying that Illinois has failed to um, 
enforce the laws, and he's not going to put up with it anymore. Not only is he quitting his job, he's moving his family out of Illinois. And uh, as a Wisconsinite, um, I would, uh, as long as he's willing to renounce his support for the Chicago Bears, uh, we would welcome mm-hmm. him into the Cheesehead family with open arms. <laughs> Charlie, what's your pick? My pick is a piece in the magazine, a harrowing piece called The Plight of the Detransitioners by Albert Eisenberg, who highlights what happens to people who think that they want to undergo permanent surgery to supposedly change their sex and then realize that they didn't actually want to do that. It's worth a read, although it is tough sledding. Yeah. Uh, Carolyn Downey, also one of our <clears throat> young journalists, has been doing a, a series on detransitioners and just just absolutely heartbreaking stuff. I should mention, by the way, for people who have asked, the bathtub spider is fine. It uh, is somewhere in the far reaches of the garage, or the, that's at least where it was last uh, seen. So my pick is a piece by another one of our young journalists, Brittany Bernstein, on Chip Roy, the congressman from Texas, vowing that uh, Congress will will break a bunch of crap if Biden actually goes through with the idea that he can ignore Congress on the debt limit and uh, invoke uh, his supposed 14th Amendment uh, powers to to do this. And I just mentioned it, one, because Brittany does great stuff generally, and two, because uh, I have an ulterior motive, because this was something he said on an NR Plus call yesterday. So if you sign up for NR Plus, this is one of the side benefits you get, is being invited to, to calls with um, conservative figures like Chip Roy, who's really a, a terrific guy, and Congress would be a much better place if there were 435 Chip Royce. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast retransmission of Countless Game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the aforementioned incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Dominic. Thanks to Noah. Thanks to Moink and Free the Economy. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.